Welcome to PodClass with Lara Axtell. As an experienced educator, Lara explores the latest educational research and practical solutions from experts, educators, and parents with the goal of increasing knowledge, improving student outcomes, and creating connections. PodClass is brought to you by Reading Horizons, whose mission is to empower teachers by providing training and tools needed to implement dynamic structured literacy instruction in the classroom. Visit readinghorizons.com to learn more. And now, PodClass with your host, Laura Axtell. Thank you for joining us for this episode of PodClass. I'm Laura Axtell, your host. Today's episode is a second in a two-part episode on closing the achievement gap. Part one included four guests from a variety of educational backgrounds with expertise on this topic. They shared the factors that contribute to the achievement gap and the implications for failing to close it. Part one really provided the context for what we'll be discussing on this episode. Today on PodClast, we'll continue the discussion with a focus on solutions. Each of our guests will share what they believe are opportunities to improve the educational outcomes for all students. Our first returning guest is Dr. Tyrone Howard, a professor of education at UCLA and the author of the book, Why Race and Culture Matters in Schools, Closing the Achievement Gap in America's Classrooms. We pick up the conversation with Dr. Howard by discussing the importance of literacy and his recommendations for closing the achievement gap. Literacy is so critical to overall academic success, but what we find is that oftentimes for poor students and students of color, at the primary grade where we know teaching and reading is so fundamental, it's higher likelihood that those students will be given access to, like I mentioned earlier, underqualified teachers who don't know how to teach reading in a real robust and culturally responsive way. We also know that oftentimes we have to help parents understand how they can support their children with literacy development at home so that when they come to school, uh, they're prepared. And my bigger concern, too, is the fact that now we have implemented reading content standards as early as kindergarten that I believe are oftentimes developmentally inappropriate. So we're expecting four, sometimes five-year-old children to be able to come to school with a set of skills around reading that, that many of our students are still trying to figure out because they haven't had exposure to them at home. So we have to figure out how to, to, to create much more phonetic-based types of reading programs. We need smaller classrooms for teachers to be able to have more intimate time with their students. And we also need to find ways to have intense literacy intervention for students who are starting to fall behind already after grades one, two, and three. Because if we have those intense literacy programs in the early grades, we can close that gap. If we let students get to middle school and they're still reading behind grade level, that's a very difficult, if not an impossible, gap to close. And so there is a lot of discussion about the achievement gap in terms of policy. But what do you think needs to happen in schools that would actually have an impact in classrooms? not only with reading, but all the other things that you mentioned. What really makes a difference at the school and classroom level? Yeah, great question. What makes a difference is really we have to focus more holistically on our, on our students. When you talk about children who are in poverty, for example, there are more pressing things that might be impacting educational development than we recognize. We have lots of students in this country who come to school without having had a good meal. We have students who are oftentimes experiencing homelessness, so they've had issues around just housing security. We know we have students who oftentimes are in situations where the traumatic experiences they encounter in their neighborhoods are impacting their overall social, emotional well-being. So there are some other physiological, social, emotional challenges which we know have a direct impact on learning. Schools need to have more social workers, more mental health therapists, 
can't have basic needs in place. We have kids who are oftentimes coming to school without adequate clothing. And so until we take care of the most basic needs for our students, we're not going to get the learning to take place in the way that we like to see it. Well, and in addition to having well-trained teachers, isn't it also important to have teachers of color? Absolutely. The research has been clear on this, and we talk about the fact that nationwide, only about maybe 18 to 20 percent of our class and teachers are of color. There's been data that shows that many students of color do better when they have at least one teacher of color. But we have to find a way to fortify the pipeline, not only for teachers of color, but we also need to make sure that the teachers who are currently in the pipeline, be they teachers of color or non-teachers of color, are adequately trained, are able to understand some of the traumatic issues that students deal with, but also have the kinds of skills that can help students who are behind academically to close those gaps. When we're talking about reading in particular, a lot of what we have to talk about is content, as you mentioned, what kids are reading, what they're being exposed to. Could you talk a little bit about the concept of mirrors, windows, and sliding glass doors as it relates to content? Yeah, so educational scholar Rudin Sims Bishop, almost two decades ago, talked about the importance of multicultural literature, that students of color Uh, needed to be exposed to more rich, robust literature, stories, textbooks that reflected their realities, that reflected their experiences. And so she used the concept of windows and mirrors, that students should be able to read content that is mirrors, wherein if they look in the content and they see faces, they see stories, they hear language that reflects to them, because that increases not only interest, it increases engagement. And in some small studies, it also increased outcomes windows in that we want students to be able to look at content and information and see the world around them and to learn about culture and history and stories that they oftentimes may not be familiar with. And this is not only good for children of color, this is good for white children too, because oftentimes white children have the mirrors where they see much of the literature and content reflects their realities, but they don't have the windows where they learn about African-American history. They learn about Latino history. They learn about the experiences of Asian Americans. They understand about the experiences of Native Americans. So the goal is How do we create what I call cultural democracies with the content that our students have access to? And so students are not reading the same literature about dead white guys over and over and over again. If you could talk to school boards and administrators who are making these kinds of decisions about where to go next to close the achievement gap, what would you say to them? What what do they need to be concentrating on? Wow, how much time would I have for that one? But uh, I think that's a great question. Uh, I would start with the fact that let's identify our most underperforming schools. And what we know on this, Lord, is that leadership matters. How do we make sure we put our strongest leaders in those schools, give them the time and support to be successful? If you've got strong leaders, they typically are able to either A, identify strong teachers, or B, help to develop strong teachers. Once we begin to develop stronger teachers, then we have stronger instructional quality. Once we have stronger instructional quality, students are able to begin to develop the skills that we want them to be successful. And then I would also add to those school board members, we've got to double down our efforts to put more resources, more money around mental health. Too many of our students are not able to focus, concentrate, memorize, process information when the the stresses of poverty are, are real, the stresses of domestic violence that they might be exposed to, foster care placement, homelessness racism, low expectations, implicit bias. We have to have supports in place to help our students be able to feel better, think through some of the real challenging situations that they're dealing with, and that can begin to increase academic performance. Okay, one last question, higher ed. If you were talking to those folks in higher ed that are training teachers, 
What do they need to know to better prepare teachers to work with students to close the achievement gap? Great question. Again, I think that what teacher education programs have to think about is the process by which we identify candidates. I think that that grade point average does not necessarily mean better teachers. I think we also have to take a close look at the elimination of some of our testing mechanisms that are used to credential teachers because we are seeing that we're losing lots of candidates of color in that process. And I think we also have to do a better job making sure that pre-service teachers get more time in classrooms and less time in university classrooms. A lot of our teachers are great on theory and they understand theory, but they don't have the wherewithal to understand how to connect with children. So I would say much less time at the university classroom and much more time in the K-12 classroom. Thank you, Dr. Howard, for sharing some really valuable information. Our next guest, Dr. Julie Washington, is the chair and a professor in the Department of Communications Sciences and Disorders at Georgia State University. Dr. Washington also serves as an affiliate faculty of the Research on the Challenges of Acquiring Language and Literacy Initiative and the Urban Child Study Center at Georgia State. We continue our conversation with her discussing how to improve classroom instruction to close the achievement gap. She provides a realistic look at the challenges for teachers and echoes much of what Dr. Howard said about how to better prepare teachers for what they will face in the classroom. When children enter school already behind, what can be done to close the achievement gap so that it doesn't widen? Let's start by looking at it from the educator's point of view. What would be helpful for classroom teachers to know, particularly what they can do to help close the achievement gap in the classroom? You know, classroom teachers are really under fire, and they're in the trenches trying to really make a difference in the achievement levels of kids who are coming to them really far behind. And so I say they're like under fire because they're in this position where you have a child who comes in who's four years old, and the child's knowledge and language skills are approximately a year behind. Your job as a teacher is to have that child performing well by the end of the year, but you not only are teaching them the content that you need for them to have during that academic year, you have to make up that year that they came in with, that gap that they came in with. And so the teacher's job is really hard because you're trying to accomplish two years of development in one academic year. And it's nearly impossible, actually. And so we see a lot of times schools now talking about kids making progress. But it's like, yeah, progress toward what, though? There has to be a standard. So if you come in a year behind and we manage to catch up that year Well, that means you didn't have really progress in the curriculum as well as we would like you to have that year. So you're still a year behind, even though you've caught up a year. And so for teachers, I think the best thing that they can do is to be really clear about where their kids are when they're coming in, exactly where they are in relationship to kids of comparable ages. Because one of the things that we're doing now with all this focus on testing and standards and so forth is that we are expecting teachers to use a particular, for example, preschool or kindergarten curriculum for kids who aren't really at the level where they can benefit from that curriculum. So you really need to know where your kids are and be prepared not only to go forward, but to step backwards a few paces and get your kids caught up so that they really can benefit 
from the curriculum. I think, you know, when we used to have this sort of catchphrase when uh, George Bush was president, no child left behind, that was the education initiative. Well, the way we're currently doing things, if you are minority and you're poor and often living in early in urban areas, it's every child left behind because we're starting from places where kids aren't ready and moving them forward regardless of their readiness. And I think for classroom teachers, they know their kids aren't ready, but they also know that they are being pushed to make sure that their kids are moving through the scope and sequence of the curriculum regardless of their readiness. And that has to stop. To determine that level of readiness, would you recommend that there is a little more time spent on assessing to determine where their children are at the beginning so that they can get a better sense of how to, you know, intervene? Yes, I do. I do recommend that. And I know every teacher who's listening is like, ah, no more testing. But the reality is the kind of testing that you use to actually inform what you're doing in the classroom is what I'm talking about. I'm not talking about standardized tests that go to the state, standardized tests that go to the feds. I'm talking about assessments that allow you to figure out where your children are and help you to determine where to start with them. And we know at the university level that part of the issue with that is that often teachers don't know what to do with data. So we have them collecting all this test data, and we're not talking about how those scores translate into what actually happens in the classroom or what should be happening in the classroom. But yes, only by doing assessments, even if they're informal assessments, can you really figure out where your kids are where you need to start, and in order to move them forward in the curriculum. You mentioned higher education. Does higher education have a role in better preparing teachers to be more effective with students of color, students from diverse cultures, students who come from poverty? Yes, we do. And I am a higher educator. And so, yes, we do. We have more responsibility for this than I think we accept. And, you know, I'm always talking about students of color, students from diverse backgrounds, students who are poor. We really have, they are our most vulnerable students, but we have a responsibility with all children. I think one of the differences with kids who come from better resources and more, you know, more education in their lives is that as parents, we will make up for the shortcomings of the school, but a lot of parents have to rely on, these parents that we're talking about, have to rely on the schools in order for their children to make the kind of progress that they need to make. I'm a parent and well-educated, and I know that there were times in my son's academic careers where they were in classrooms where the teachers were okay, but they weren't really strong in doing certain kinds of things, especially as it related to like reading and mathematics. And I was able to supplement it with either by doing things at at home or enrolling them in supplemental programs, making sure that they always had what they needed at every step of the way. But not all parents are equipped to do that either financially or in terms of their own educational backgrounds, even knowing what to do. Those are the parents who rely most heavily on schools to know what to do. 
in higher education, I think we're failing teachers in that regard. They don't get enough time in the classroom. They don't get enough time with students who are really struggling. They don't get enough real-world experience before we put them in those classrooms and expect them to, you know, make things happen. And so what happens is we lose them. Our very best teachers, we either lose them completely, you know, we lose more than half of our teachers in the first five years. They either leave teaching altogether or they go to a private school or somewhere where it's a lot easier than being in a public school environment where you're dealing with all of these issues that you really haven't been equipped to manage. So do you have specific recommendations that you think would really benefit pre-service programs at the higher ed level in this particular area to close the gap? You know, we talk about this a lot, I and some of my colleagues who are aware of what we see happening when teachers are going into the schools. And I think from a pre-service standpoint, teachers need a lot more time or student teachers need a lot more time in schools dealing with real problems. You know, one of the things I hear a lot from some of my colleagues is that it's hard to find good teachers for students to get that experience with. And I understand that, but if you're looking for the ideal teacher for students to spend time with, that's not the real world for them when they get into school. They do need good, solid, strong examples, but they also just need to be in there, learning how to deal with behavior problems, learning how to manage a classroom, learning how to be a good teacher. So time is a big one. There's also the curriculum. The curriculum in higher education, my focus is language and the relationship between language and reading. And one of the things that I find is that we talk a lot as researchers about the science of reading. And we know what's going on with kids who are having difficulty with reading. Here's the science. You do not see the science of reading in schools. And so there's a disconnect between what's happening in practice and what is happening at the higher education level that you really see if you spend even an hour in a classroom. And professional development is not enough. Having someone come and talk at you for an hour or two hours is not enough to really be able to take the knowledge and use it in a really competent way in a classroom. And so some of it is that we What's happening in research, all the advances that we're making as it relates to mathematics instruction or as it relates to reading just aren't making their way into the classroom. And we know that it's true. It's a research to practice issue that we talk about all the time, but we've got to find a solution for it. At the administrator's level, a school board, state education departments, uh, district administration, Have you seen policies or effective solutions that can address improving achievement for the most vulnerable students? Yes, I do know that the places where we see school boards and state education departments being successful are those where they're flexible and really responsive to what they see going on in their schools. That's where you see the most success where a school board or a state education department is really aware and realistic about the achievement levels of the students in their schools and allow schools the latitude to be more creative in responding. You know, there's a real problem that we're seeing in some schools as we're coming off 
these big initiatives where teachers had to do things a certain way, use only this curriculum, do only these things, and they don't feel supported when they try to do things outside of that kind of rigid structure. And I think where that rigidity exists is where you really don't see very much going on. It takes creativity, it takes realism, and it takes skills for teachers to do well in the classroom, but they have to feel supported by the people above them, I think, in order to be willing to go in and make those kinds of changes in their classroom. I've seen some really good teachers recently who are just really excellent, and the thing that they have in common is that they really connect with their students, that they really have a connection with the families of their students, so that they have a regular communication with parents. Even those parents who aren't able to help them much still need to know what's going on in the classroom and provide the kind of support that they can. So from the vantage point of people above, I think the solutions that I've seen that are most effective are those that are responsive and that we're starting to hear more about partnerships between schools and universities I think that makes a big difference as well. You can't get into a university and never go into a school and call yourself a teacher educator in the same way you cannot be a teacher in schools for decades and never connect yourself to current thinking about education. There just has to be more connection. And there are some states and school districts, I think, that are really working on these issues and working together on them, which is really important. Dr. Washington, thank you so much for sharing your expertise. You're welcome. After a short break, we're going to continue this discussion. Podcast is brought to you by Reading Horizons, the creator of a structured literacy program for beginning readers, struggling readers, and English language learners of all ages. By combining professional development, teacher-led instruction, and data-driven software, students receive targeted instruction that leads to efficient reading improvement. Visit ReadingHorizons.com slash trial for 14 days of free access to our software. Now we'll hear from Dr. Patrick Chudren. Dr. Chudren is the Assistant Superintendent for Student Services at East Windsor Public Schools in Connecticut. Dr. Chudren oversees student services for his district and talks specifically on this episode about the needs he sees in his district and how to address those needs. I can tell you... I believe this is my 15th year working in education in some capacity. And what the students looked like 15 years ago to 10 years ago to even five years ago in the class has uh, differed vastly. In terms of their academic needs and challenges? I would say like always. Um, So like some of their academic needs and challenges, I would say there's an increase in that. So we're seeing there's a greater number of students with academic needs and challenges. And saying that those academic needs or challenges are different, I wouldn't say they're so different than they were 10 or 15 years ago. I would say the difference is that there's more students that have those needs. And then why would also say is what makes it more challenging than maybe 10 or 15 years ago is that their readiness to receive that level of instruction. So 15 years ago when I first started teaching, yes, you had students that needed targeted uh, instruction and I was providing that targeted instruction as a special ed teacher. Typically I was providing in my role, it was uh, reading instruction. And so uh, um, we still have students that um, require that same level of reading instruction 
but what they're also bringing with them is a higher level of need as far as their social emotional needs. And it's not uncommon within our school district. I mean, I've looked at the statistics in New England, but as far as the mental health needs of all students, at least in the New England area, I'm sure it's similar across the country, is uh, that there's an increase. So it's really that social-emotional readiness to receive that level of instruction where even before you deliver that instruction, there's more back-end work that needs to be done as far as uh, working with a child and making them feel comfortable, safe, and connected with school. Dr. Tudrin, thank you so much for providing your expertise. I'm sure you've heard a recurring theme from all three of our guests on this episode so far. They have each mentioned looking at the whole child and the need to address the social, emotional, and educational issues of children who often come to school unprepared or unable to learn. When children begin their education already significantly behind their peers, there isn't enough time or a system in place to close that gap. Our last guest is Keith Dizars. Mr. Dizars is the Director of K-12 Practice at the Education Trust. The Trust is a national nonprofit that works to close opportunity gaps that disproportionately affect students of color and students from low-income families. We continue our conversation when I ask him the magic wand question about solving the achievement gap and ends with him discussing the very real ramifications that result in communities and society when we fail to close the gap. If you had one wish that would have the greatest impact and would take effect tomorrow to close the achievement gap, what would you wish for? Well, you know, I'm going to answer this question from a teacher perspective, that the teacher in me really thinks if we could find a way to give the gift of time, more time, to both our students and to our teachers, uh, I think we could make real progress on closing the achievement gap. And, you know, I should note that time is a luxury that we, always, that we often wish for and ask for. But in this case, I would, I, would, I would emphasize this is time being used efficiently and effectively, right? So how are we maximizing the time we currently have with our students and that teachers have for their own professional growth? But above and beyond that, what are opportunities to extend the time? Because we often just don't have enough and we don't have the space for example, for teachers to grow. So, you know, on the student level, I would say, how do, how do we have more opportunities for students? What does, what does it look like and what are the benefits uh, of closing achievement gaps when we give access to more time and, and experiencing high-quality curriculum and with an effective educator that actually this does help. It has a significant impact. So that's the first one. On the, on the teacher side, I think this is particularly important, giving teachers the time and as educators, the time and the space to really hone in on, reflect on, and advance our practice. It's something I think we don't, we just don't have the opportunity to do given how our systems are currently set up, right? So, you know, and, and some might push back and say, well, yeah, but, you know, schools have, um, teachers have their planning times throughout the day, right? Or they have professional development days built in. And the reality is those are good first start, but I think, you know, usually those, the sort of day-to-day bleeds over into any of those opportunities, right? So I think that it really is a, how do we, how do we think very uh, creatively and, uh, and innovatively about how we're using time with teachers? And, you know, 
sometimes, you know, what, what does a model look like in which, you know, some schools now doing early release days, uh, you know, one day a week that they're releasing students early. It doesn't mean that they have to have an extended day or extended year to make up for the, that time, but, you know, really providing teachers with a whole half day once a week to come together and have true meaningful development opportunities as a staff, that's pretty promising. But it seems like such a such an important thing, and you know, some of the work and research that's been done internationally on this of what the workload looks like, right? In other countries, other very successful countries on this, it just seems like there's a stark difference between how we treat the time of teachers and sort of what they what they are asked to do in a what becomes then a shorter a short day compared to to other countries. And and the last point on this, and I can't help but say this given the push that we've seen across the country, rightfully so, time, more time for teachers means we have to support more money uh, and higher pay for teachers. And again, gets back to that larger push we've talked about today of direct funding, but also resources uh, and really wrapping re uh, this idea of time as a resource that we should think about and be creative about in terms of trying to help close the achievement gaps that we see across the country. Based on your experience, is anybody doing it right? Are there some models out there that are working? Yeah, you know, there, there are. I think like many things in education, there are pockets that we see that are working, right? So, so take that example of an early release day and, you know, districts and schools, particularly even some that have used federal uh, or state turnaround dollars to help advance this, you know, we do see improvements, uh, not only in the quality of instruction that are happening, but also, you know, more importantly, the, the outcomes for students. I think the challenge is finding these at scale becomes difficult, and in a large part because of the immense number of challenges, the biggest one being really financially to be able to support these efforts, that takes an investment. It really does. It, it, it takes an investment in our, our overall educational system. And, you know, I, I would also say that these, when these are sort of pockets here, in some ways they, they tend to, to be successful while they're there, but then we know students go to transition to a different school, right? Or they move on uh, after they go to their elementary or pre-K, they go on to high school where they may not be involved in that. And so, I think that this is more of just a, to get this out of, we need to get this out of the, the episodic space and really think of this much more broadly from at a national level of what are things we can do, not saying that nationally everyone has to do the same thing, but really how do we invest more in, in being creative and innovative around this, uh, I think would make a pretty big impact. But at this point, you know, yeah, there are some districts I think that are, they're, they're thinking about this. Uh, but really, in, in large part across the country, this tends to be uh, these pockets, right, of individual schools, or in some cases, even schools that have more flexibility, maybe in a charter setting, where they can have flexibility to experiment with this, not sort of wholesale, large, uh, at scale across uh, all districts or, or across an entire district. So somebody who might be listening may just have the question, okay, why is this so important? What are the ramifications if we don't provide equity for all students? What happens as a result? You know, I think, it, I think it's simple. I think it's the status quo, right? It's, this, it's, it's a status quo in which the gaps remain. In some cases, the, the, the inequities widen. 
they they grow. I, I think that that is the the biggest risk we we face as a country. You know, we've made progress across uh, nationally on on student achievement, right? So we should definitely celebrate that uh, over the over decades. We know that from looking at uh, our our achievement scores, but you know, we have to ask ourselves and really pay attention to the achievement gap because that is in some ways, you know, well, we've, we've made, had success about closing certain places. It is still there. It persists. It persists in almost uh, all areas of, for, of, for low-income students and students of color. And so, you know, the, the reality is, the risk is, if we don't think about this, we don't, we don't think about being creative about addressing this, right, whether it's through time or space or funding or re- resource equity, the reality is I think we're looking at just maintaining the status quo, and that is not okay for a large population of, of students across the country. They are not getting the same educational access to opportunities that they should, and that's just, you, you talked about sort of this being an equity issue. That for us is really the true fight here at EdTrust because there, that creates an inequity uh, in which some have and some do not. That's not okay for, for not not uh, in in the country we live in. And can you just talk about how does that translate? So once a student leaves, if the achievement gap continues and wide or widens, once students leave, how does that translate to something that does impact everyone? The economy, the potential, lost potential. That's right. That's right. And on all those fronts, right? We, we've seen that in study after study, and 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 all this research on. The investment we make up front for our students, the direct impact it has on 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 our communities. Uh, it, it, it's it's an economic issue. It's a reason for folks on uh, from all aspects of, politi- uh, of the political spectrum to be invested in this because this does have an, an economical impact on the cities and the communities in which we we raise our students and our students become adults and and citizens. So I would say that there's that aspect of it, but there's also this this aspect of how we're preparing students for the jobs that exist, right? And so, you know, if we want these advanced careers in STEM or in different areas, how are we preparing them? And, you know, are we doing an adequate enough job? That, That has a huge impact as well. So it is a, it is a, has a much bigger impact on how the, the money that we spend up front contributes to having, again, communities uh, that are educated, competent in the jobs that we need, and, and sort of overall contributing to the community that they live in. Thanks so much for sharing your perspective, Mr. Dizars. Thanks. Great for having me. Great conversation. This episode provided a range of recommendations about ways in which to close the achievement gap. From teacher training that would better prepare teachers to enter classrooms, to looking at content that would engage children from diverse backgrounds and provide both mirrors and windows, to providing more time and resources for schools to provide early intervention that would work to close the achievement gap in the early grades, our guests offered valuable insights and real solutions. We appreciate their willingness to share them with us. As always, we appreciate you, our listeners, for joining us. Thank you. Thank you for joining us for this episode of Podcast. Subscribe to Podcast to be notified when future episodes are available. If you enjoyed today's episode, consider leaving us a review. To submit discussion topics or to recommend a student, parent, educator, or experts to be interviewed on future episodes, 
please send an email to podcast at readinghorizons.com. Podclast is brought to you by Reading Horizons, the creator of a structured literacy program for beginning readers, struggling readers, and English language learners of all ages. By combining data-driven software with teacher-led instruction, students receive a targeted reading support that leads to rapid improvement. Visit readinghorizons.com demo to see if Reading Horizons is right for your school. Reading Horizons. Reading is for everyone.